So we don't go in talking about sectarianism or the incident that might have happened. We talk about things in a very broad sense. We talk about Northern Ireland and how this place works and how we interact with each other. And we out this notion of politeness, avoidance and denial very quickly. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Mel Corey from Trademark Belfast was my guest on today's show. Mel is a self-described retired Hellraiser, banjo player, and communist. His work with Trademark is focused on going into workplaces and confronting our Northern Irish habit of employing a trifecta of politeness, avoidance, and denial to stop us confronting our sectarian past, the remnants of it that still exist within our society and how we can improve those discussions and our relationships by actually discussing the issues that remain underlying in Northern Ireland today. I had a lot of fun exploring these issues with Mel and I hope you'll enjoy our chat. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Mel Corey. So, Mel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to chat to me. Well, it's really nice to be asked, and uh, it's lovely to be with you this morning, Josh. So, you're a part of uh, Trademark Belfast. What is your like official position in the movement, organization? How do you describe yourselves? Um, well, I, I've been working for Trademark since 2006. Um, uh, the organization was established in 2001. Um, and currently, my position is co-director. Um, uh, it sounds very grand, but in an organization of four people, it doesn't really mean an awful lot. Um, <laughs> it's a, a technical term more than anything else. Um, we're an organization that uh, is um, essentially... Um, uh, um, born out of anti-sectarian work that was um, at one time um, uh, very very sharp and difficult work here in, in uh, Northern Ireland and um, uh, as, as opposed to a certain degree um, it, it's changed but st- sectarianism is still very much with us so whilst we um, our, our work is much broader than anti-sectarianism now we still see ourselves rooted in that anti-sectarian world that we were we were born out of. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very strong link to the to the uh, trade union movement. Um, we're sort of an official uh, uh, unit within the Irish Congress of Trade Unions that deals with issues around conflict in the workplace. That's not terms and conditions of employment related. So issues around conflict, human rights, equality. All the stuff that are stuff that's difficult, that uh, quite possibly trade union officials mightn't have um, the skills or experience to deal with, usually gets passed over to us. Usually, when the proverbial has hit the fan as well, and it's very difficult. But um, th- that's that's our sort of roots anyway. Hmm. So, how did you get involved? 
Um, well, I, I'm a former textile worker. Um, I worked in a factory here. I was a senior shop steward in a factory in Lurgan, County Armagh, up until it closed in 1999. Um, and I then set about doing some voluntary work for for my union, which at that time was Transport and General Workers Union, um, and doing some um, voluntary organising work. Um, at that time, I was also involved in the union's education department as a as a tutor, so teaching other shop stewards um, and basic shop steward skills, advanced skills, health and safety, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that became um, uh, it, it turned into a, a, a sort of a professional shift for me because a lot of the the um, trade union education programs started to be delivered through further education colleges. So. I worked through various colleges over the years. Um, I also developed an interest in anti-sectarian work, um, having seen um, Trademark's predecessor, Counteract, uh, which was established in 1990, um, and did some really groundbreaking work, particularly in workplaces. And I used to bring um, my old friend, Joe Law, who was a founding member of Trademark, in when he worked for Counteract to um, alert shop stewards to the dangers of sectarianism in the workplace. Um, so I, I just, I just, I, I, I seen how it was done um, and I developed, um, developed a sort of a, a passion for that. Um, and I started then to work um, as a sort of an associate with, with Trademark um, when they had a couple of big contracts and um, I've been there ever since really. Okay. So when you say you're doing anti-sectarian work or humans, human rights work, like, could you give us an example of, of like the kind of case you would deal with? Like what sort of thing would they, would they pass over to you? Okay, well, I suppose there are a number of, of high-profile um, cases that we were involved in over the years. Mm-hmm. Sectarianism very much uh, in, in the North here has been characterized um, as... Um, you know, we get by with each other here through a process of politeness, avoidance, and denial. <laughs> um, we're, we're too polite to ask each other what um, religion we are or what political parties we, we vote for. Um, and we um, avoid talking about the troubles, avoid talking about what makes us different. And then when the subject does come up, we deny there's any problem. Everybody gets on great. Mm-hmm. Um, trademark and, and counteract uh, before it, our, our niche was breaking through that politeness, avoidance and denial, saying we have got problems here, let's sort them out. Um, going right back to, uh, I suppose, um, there were issues in textile factories in the Northwest. All of these factories, interestingly enough, are all, all gone, the ones that I'm, I'm going to talk about. Um, there was a Desmond's factory up in um, New Buildings outside um, uh, Derry, where the workforce was quite mixed. Um, and a number of people came into work one day wearing black ribbons in their lapel um, mm-hmm. and started to to go about their work. And before the first break, there was a, 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 a an outcry on the shop floor because other people reacted to that um, th- those black ribbons. Uh, the company didn't know how to deal with it. The union didn't know how to deal with it. There was a walkout of um, unionist workers um, and then the uh, resolution that they came to was that the workers would 
take off the 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 symbols. And as they were the the, the unionist workers were walking back into the workplace, they met the nationalists on the way out because they were reacting to the fact that these people weren't allowed to um, give an expression of solidarity to what what was actually an anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. So in the nineties, all of those issues were still quite sharp. So um, Counteract was involved in in that kind of of mediation of how do we deal with all of these issues and it's done in the workplace. And then there were a whole series of things. There was an issue in Moigashal with the flag up a pole and the flag would come up, the workers would go back into work, the company would introduce a new policy, flag would come down, workers would walk out and it was just ongoing. Those kind of things used to happen on a daily basis here. Hmm. Um, and then we had we we have always argued that that um, sectarianism is an institutional problem in uh, in the north, in that uh, uh, organisations are infected with the consequences of the conflict and all the rest, um, and that came home to um, to roost when there was a, a major dispute in the Northern Ireland ambulance service um, over a picture on a wall of um, victims of, of the um, the Enniskillen bombing, um, which happened, uh, and um, the, the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service decided to take down the pictures, and the local people reacted to that. Um, I'd get into all the detail of all of that, mm. but it started in Enniskillen, and then it spread right across the whole of the ambulance service. So um, the ambulance service dealt with it in a very progressive way and through the various unions um, trademark were brought in. We spent oh, it was a period of years, maybe three years, training all um, ambulance personnel on um, policies, procedures, the right way to deal with these things, but also providing a space to talk about the issues that make us different. Mm. So we would have very, very difficult conversations that broke through that politeness, avoidance, and denial. And that's all always been our style. And thankfully, over the last number of years, incidents like that have become less and less, but only um, as late of, uh, as uh, 2019, um, I was in a, a company resolving um, or helping to resolve a, a, a dispute that had the potential to be as big as anything that we had seen previously. Uh, another um, issue that's very public was an issue in Asda supermarkets. Um, I don't know if you remember that one, Josh. Um, I don't, like just not off the top of my head. Yeah, it's it's a good way to go now. Um, but a, a guy made a, a remark to a, a lorry driver coming in to make deliveries in the Shore Road, okay. um, um, the Shore Road in Belfast, and that they're asked to shop there. And the guy didn't know what he had. He didn't know whether this man was joking, whether he was being, trying to intimidate him or something like that. Okay. Um, and he reported the incident to the management. The management um, dismissed the person on the spot. Um, and uh, the workers walked out of the store in um, solidarity with the man who had just been dismissed. The allegation was that the remark made was a sectarian remark. So that was okay. The union came along, and of course, if you're a, a union official of any um, experience or skill, you would be able to say, well, you can't dismiss somebody for, um, uh, for something that you haven't investigated man wasn't suspended he wasn't afforded the opportunity for um 
defended himself or to have representation. Therefore, the dismissal is automatically unfair. The guy was reinstated. The workers came back into work. But before the end of the day, right across Belfast in the nationalist part of town, workers had heard about it and they were saying, what's the union doing defending someone who's accused of sectarianism? Mm. There was another dispute over that. So that was a, um, a dispute that resulted in Trademark being involved in a project that trained uh, over a period of three or four years, 4,000 of ASDA staff. Um, it was very high profile work, very difficult. We did um, night shifts, weekends. We covered every ASDA store that was located in Northern Ireland at the time. Um, and um, it's it formed the basis for a major piece of research that we did on uh, sectarianism in the workplace, um, which is bubbling under the surface always in this place. Mm. Okay, I want to get to the, the research in, in, in a little bit, but first I want to talk about how you how you get people to to come in and discuss these difficult topics like one of the things that that I think people could make a lot of accusations about our sort of modern culture is that we are in ways unwilling to confront like difficult topics um, especially ones that, that that mention like an uncomfortable part of our past like for maybe for my generation that we don't we don't always maybe appreciate how how difficult that might be to confront like some of the, the the real horrors that people had to deal with on a on a daily basis especially um especially in northern ireland because to us it's almost like a joke like it's but it's it's just something we all laugh about and and i guess it can be difficult to to sometimes understand how how difficult it can be for older people who 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 had to live through the troubles to to then essentially like i think the the the, the policy that i always sort of hoped might work in Northern Ireland was to say, okay, we, we have to try and forgive each other, but we can't forget what happened. And, but even, even that like idea of, of being able to, to forgive people for, for a lot of, a lot of maybe of, of that generation that lived through the troubles is, is a difficult thing to start to, to even ex- accept the idea of, of, of forgiving someone who was seen as your mortal enemy, maybe for, for 20 years. Like, how do you get people to come in and and have those dialogues? Like, where do you start with that? Um, it's 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 very difficult. It's a very difficult um, balancing act. Um, and no one, uh, and even in all the the, the companies that I, that I have worked in, where people, um, and we've had groups of 15, 20 people in in a group, um, talking about these issues, released from their work. So you're you're going upstairs into the the boardroom for this class. It's going to last three hours, and um, no one volunteers for that. <laughs> no one. You know, I've always asked how many people have volunteered to be at this session this morning, um, and we spend the first um, ten or fifteen minutes just exploding that politeness, avoidance, and denial by saying, you know, don't be worrying about it. We're 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 all you know I'm no less sectarian and and than than anyone else here. Mm. I was. Born um, 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 into a community, I was raised in that community. Um, I learned how the world worked from the TV, from my friends, from my parents' family, from school. Uh, so I'm no different to anybody else. Uh, and you build up over a period, and, and it has to be done very, very quickly, of course, in those circumstances. Empathy with with people um, and a bit of trust, um, and 
being being a trade unionist and being able to say that you come from the trade union that you're not there actually to um, necessarily to perform a service for the company that you're here to mend relationships or do something positive is also helpful as well so you you're, you're coming in and um like for you're coming in and for example saying to people that this is about this is about you, about the worker, and this is about making the workplace better for you. This is not about us doing something for the company itself. Yes, I mean, if I go back to the ASDA um, um, uh, incident, the guy who was involved, the, guy, the, the, the man who was involved in that incident who instigated the whole dispute, we insisted that he would be in the first session. Um, we weren't going to refer him refer to him by name or anything like that. Um, we thought it was important that he would be in the session. Um, we also insist that um, when, we, when we're engaged by a company that we start with the boardroom and we work our way down through the shop floor. It's important for people to understand that this is a societal problem that's not simply related to working class people. Um, so it's not a case of um, uh, a company management bringing us in saying, please go and sort out our workers. The management have to go through it first. We also recommend that the management and the trade unionists, whether it's one union or multiple unions, all take part in that dis initial discussion. So whenever we did the first session with ASDA and the guy who was involved in the, the incident, um, he, he he just put his hand up. He said, this is about me, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, we were saying, well, look, it's you know, it, there was an incident that that um, precipitated this action, but don't be worrying about it. Calm down. You're not going to be referred to in any sense. You know, it's you, you know, we're going to have what may be a, a difficult conversation, but we're going to handle it in a way that nobody's going to leave this room feeling that they've been singled out or um, uh, intimidated or uh, threatened in any way. Um, so I think when you can do that. In that, those set of circumstances, um, the, you know, it, it's pretty standard from that from that going forward. You know. So what when when you go in and you say, okay, we're going to perform this training. Like, what, what does the training encompass? Like, what do you what do you what are you training people to do? Well, um, we're, we're, I suppose you know, if, if you look at it like that, we're we're. We're asking people really to consider their workmates um, and to consider the fact that that um, how society here operates, you know, that whilst, you know, and, and when you when you go into to a room where um, legislation has been in place um, since the 1970s, mid 1970s, which says whatever you do, do not talk about the war. So you can't have um, uh, political um, or religious symbolism in the workplace. And of course, the Northern Ireland workplace used to be characterized by, you know, being Protestant work, Protestant factories and Catholic factories and, and the symbolism within those walls would would um, um, sort of indicate what type of workplace that you're in. That was all outlawed in the, in the 1970s. So we, we, we talk about that. We said we've got neutral and harmonious working environments here, but we had to introduce legislation to create that. Um, now, why was that? Where um, did, did sectarianism come from and how does it affect us? And how does it affect our relationships? 
and the fact that we're all able to sit in the, I suppose the Fair Employment Acts of 76 and 89 um, were very, very successful in the sense that workplace discrimination and um, uh, incidents of intimidation and harassment are nothing like what they were at that particular time. And workplaces are largely um, much more integrated than they were. And mm. um, so it was a successful piece of legislation. So we don't go in talking about sectarianism or the incident that might have happened. We talk about things in a very broad sense. We talk about Northern Ireland and how this place works and how we interact with each other. And we out this notion of politeness, avoidance and denial very quickly. So, you know, asking people, if you met a stranger in a pub, how would the conversation go? If you met somebody standing at a bus stop, you know, and they said hello to you and you know, what would be the first question, you know? And, you know, I, I, you, you, you probably know this yourself. You're a lot younger than me. But mm -hmm. um, if you meet a stranger in a pub, how does the conversation go? You know, once once you've, they've asked your name. Hmm. It's normally where you're from. Yeah, where you're from. Um, if they don't get it from where you're from, they'll go to the next question, which is, what school did you go to? Hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, and then, and you know, and it's it's much more subtle than that. You know, somebody would come up and, say, and I've had it um, with me um, hundreds of times, um, standing in a pub and somebody coming up and saying, "I, I recognise your face. I think I know you. What's your name?" And then when they don't get it from your name, no, no. Uh, do you live around here? All of those questions, and it's it, when you when you recognise that that's how we we operate here, and and uh, I suppose. There was a time when that kind of approach might have been sinister and dangerous. We have to we find ways of negotiating our lives through very very difficult um, circumstances. That might be that might be hard for people of a certain generation to understand, but that's the way it was um, um, right up until the nineteen nineties. Uh, you had to have a mechanism for finding out if I'm safe in this environment. Um, am I okay among the people that I'm surrounded by? You know, and we have managed to get away with that, but that residue of politeness, avoidance, and denial is still there. Mm. This was a reticence um, among people to talk about the issues that still divide us, um, which I'm, I suppose I'm hopeful that it's breaking down with a new generation. Um, but certainly, our view is that if we don't talk about it and we don't find safe spaces, um, to talk about it, then we run the risk of creating a new generation of people infected with with um, the legacy of that conflict. Mm. It might not necessarily be sectarianism, um, the, the way we knew it in the 70s and 80s, but it'll be some other form of it. So do you think that, you, so you, you're saying, about, just for clarification, but maybe people who don't quite get what we're talking about, um, that you're saying that like it, uh, from the the 60s and 70s because of the like the way our society was divided that all of your initial questions however conscious it was maybe a lot more conscious and perhaps even sinister like you said back back in the day where the people would be saying okay so what's your name and then they would try to be guess guess from that are you protestant are you catholic like how much does your name yeah. give it away then it would be okay so where are you from maybe you know you're you say somewhere that that's not typically like protestant or catholic and then it's like oh so where did you go to school and that's the sort of question that's that's the reason for that line of questioning do you think that's still 
in the back of people's heads, like unconsciously in Nor- in Northern Ireland amongst young people, because I don't know. I guess like for me, it, it's it, I I would ask those questions, but in my in my head, that's not. I'm not I'm not seeking to discover whether they're Protestant or Catholic. I I just kind of want to know where they're from as a basis for a conversation. So, do you think that yeah. that's still like implicitly what we're looking for when we ask those questions or 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 maybe not i don't know i think there and in the last few years when i've been doing this um with people and we we pointed out um there's there's always uh, a bit of laughter in the room when you point out politeness avoidance and denial it's it's almost like you know when somebody tells a really obvious joke and you say ah oh, yeah yeah, that's exactly how we get on, and uh, because people will say it, ah, you know, he's right in that sense. Uh, I don't think there's as many people have it in their head now when they ask, when they have those conversations, that they're trying to find out anything. Um, the 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 residue really there is a, a sort of a cultural um, uh, uh, thing that we we engage in, which you know that's just the way of conversation. You know that, that you know that's that, that's the way casual conversation goes mm. in this place. Uh, you might do that because you've seen other people doing the same thing. You're not necessarily having to, or you're not. Re- most people are not really interested in what religion other people are because organized religion in itself is in decline, and a lot of people don't really care um, about that over the last number of years. Um, but the the um, even when people say, "We, uh, you know, I, I don't care what people's political opinions are, or their religion, or anything like that," when then we it moves us on to a different place because um, then I can stop being funny about the whole thing and say, "Well, okay, let's take it that we're all nice, liberal, um, well-meaning people, but why do we choose to live separately? Why do we choose to live among our own?" Why do we choose to send our children to separate schools? Why do we read different newspapers? Why do we play different sports? Um, all of that sort of stuff. It allows us to tease that out. Mm. Um, and, and that's the purpose of it. I mean, I guess... Which is what we, yeah. it's, it's what, what we do here, isn't it? In, yeah. in, in Northern Ireland. We still are a very segregated society. Mm. Um, and even... Well-meaning people, even myself included, um, we all make decisions about our children, our children's education. Um, now, I could be very sort of, um, you know, blase about the whole thing and just say, well, I sent my kids to the nearest local school. Um, but I'm not necessarily true if I would be, uh, I'm not necessarily sure if I would be being honest just to say that, you know what I mean? Um, that there might have been other reasons why, well, there would be a conscious reason why I didn't send them to an integrated school mm. because there wasn't any about at the time, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like for for me, I was actually kind of lucky um, in that I lived in in England for about six years, like from from my pri- during my primary school years, just because uh, of uh, my parents had moved there for for work and stuff, and then I moved back, and then I guess uh, like the, I was at um, I went to Sullivan. In, uh, in Hollywood and I, I like the first few years I I just I remember kind of getting the, the the Catholic Protestant jokes or, or just dynamic but I 
because I hadn't been bathed in it for like six years, I hadn't just grown up around that kind of discussion. It took me a few years before I, I even understood that that there was people who actually cared about like the difference yeah. in really because it was it was it wasn't really something that was brought up that much. Um probably for the better in 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 you know just amongst like the people I was at school with or or the groups I was with or the the teachers I had or I don't know what what exactly it was but I remember noticing just occasionally and like being being intrigued that that was still something that people talked about like it was it was almost shocking to me that I was like hang on wait like people actually care <laughs> it was a weird one um yeah but uh, well, you see, see, being Josh from Hollywood and going to Sullivan tells me an awful lot about you. Yeah. Um, without me having to ask any questions, you know. Mm. I've told you that I'm Mel from Lurgan. Um, uh, and have it, have it, does that give anything away to you? I mean, about me? I mean, maybe, but I, I guess, I guess I wouldn't be. Uh, again, like it's one of those things that it doesn't quite mean as much to me. I think maybe in in just just because like I said where where I was from like religion when I was growing up just wasn't talked about wasn't something we discussed like it was it was only when I became like old enough to understand the conflict and what was going on that I started to notice that that was a, a part of society um yeah I mean I guess like saying from you're from Lurgan I, I I mean, I could make some guesses, but I I don't like to assume, especially not these days. Yeah. <laughs> there you see, you're being very polite <laughs> and you're avoiding talking about the problem mm. and you're denying that there is a problem because you're um, a lot younger than me and, um, you know, it, it's not an issue for your generation. But I'm sure there's something in the back of your head that's wondering, I wonder is male Catholic or Protestant? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe there is. <laughs> um, no, it's it's something I do all the time. I'm I'm lucky in the sense that my name is Mel Corey. It doesn't give an awful lot away, mm. and I can see in people's heads when I'm when I'm um, interacting with the group that I'm talking about all of these things, but they don't know which side of the fence I'm coming from. Mm. And I let it go, and I let it go, and then I would say to people, "By the way, has anybody worked out, you know, whether I'm um, proud or Fenian, you know, and go around the room." And everybody will have a different view on it. Well, they're from Lurgan. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? Oh, oh, it's full of mad people in Lurgan. They're all they're all dissidents. Um. What part of Lurgan do you come from? Well, I come from the north part. Uh, it doesn't give much away. So you you toy with people, and then eventually I say to people, listen, I was brought up in a nationalist household. Um. I was uh, Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Um. I don't uh, subscribe to any religion as an adult. Um, and but that's not to say I don't um, have cultural residue from my upbringing and and all of that sort of stuff. As I say, I was you know brought up and conditioned to be sectarian, possibly racist, certainly homophobic, um, and um, I work into all of those issues every day of the week. Um, and that's a way of breaking through to people um, and say, okay, well this lad. It's just the same as me because I'm just trying to do the same stuff. I mean, I do, I do enjoy how you use the politeness, avoidance, denial sort of strategy, or like to 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 
to try to confront that 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 attitude and it's almost like a complete antithesis um maybe you can correct me maybe you don't think this is the case but to me it feels like a complete antithesis to the the kind of um unconscious bias training that goes on in in some places um in uh america quite quite a lot and and sort of in the mainland uk more and more where people are being being tested for um yeah for for their their unconscious bias but without really much um there's not there's not very much literature at all that proves that that does anything um like that it improves the situation at all whereas i feel like you're you're kind of just going in there and instead of trying to like dance around the issue you're just going in there with a sledgehammer and just being like yep we're gonna talk about this like (laughs) just sort of smashing through people's maybe I, i don't know you use the word yeah, safe space, but in a way, you're creating the very yeah. antithesis of that. Well, in our discussions, in a three-hour um, discussion in a workplace uh, workshop, we would discuss everything from um, um, sectarianism through, through um, homophobia, racism, um, ableism and disabilism, um, and uh, uh, domestic violence. We, we cover the whole gamut. Uh, and uh, you know, no one has ever got up and walked out in the middle of one of my sessions or of any of our sessions. Um, uh, we've always been able to um, have people going out saying, you know, I was challenged by that. I really enjoyed that. Um, and companies have come back and universally, um, a lot of the companies that we have worked with endorse the work that we do. Um, and it's, it's helped them deal deal with the problem. Um, and for for years, I mean, we've 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 stuck to that sort of anti-sectarian moniker. When other people in the community relations um, uh, arena were saying that's a bit confrontational, would you not soften that? Could you not talk about good relations and community relations, and you know, it would open up more doors for you? And we were saying, yeah, but it's the it's 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 dancing around the problem. Um, it's not confronting the issues. And it's letting other people off the hook. It's letting institutions off the hook. It's not um, dealing with structural and socioeconomic issues that are compounded by um, the 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 issues of sectarianism. And we, I, I think that we have been vindicated over a period of years, um, particularly when you see, um, I suppose, the, the debate that's going on around um, Black Lives Matter and the the outcry over um, uh, George Floyd's Floyd's murder um, and the um, number of um, black people that have been coming on saying, you know, why are white people surprised by this? Um, you know, we've been you know whilst uh, they've they've been caught in this sort of cultural diversity versus anti-racism mire for years and years and i suppose um, a lot of that comes from the american experience as well uh, and i'm hoping that that you know what's happening with black lives matter and the shift towards confronting racism and an acceptance among um institutions that racism is a problem is that our work being anti-sectarian is being vindicated if that makes sense i know it was a bit of a ramble there Josh. no no that makes sense like i mean I, the 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 I find that like maybe not COVID specifically, but like this year has kind of brought into to quite clear clarity for me. Um, it's it's funny watching different societies 
divide themselves over COVID based on like the divisions that are in that society. Like for example, in America and in in the in the mainland UK at least anyway, there was a lot of focus on how people from minority backgrounds were being worse affected by by COVID. And here we managed to turn it into um, like high or not even we, but the DUP and Edward Poots managed to turn it into, you know, all the Catholics, they're, they're, they're the problem with COVID. And then, you know, we, we, like uh, different societies have managed to make it. And some, a lot of different people have managed to make this whole thing about, about their, about the divisions that were already there in, in society. I find there was, there was some, um, there were some people talking about how women had been worse affected by COVID. And I just, I kept looking at it and being like, wow, this is, is really kind of bringing into sharp clarity the fact that we can, we can use our, our existing sort of like fault lines to, to get mad at each other over anything. It, it doesn't, <laughs> they don't have to be like specifically related to it. But, but I, the, the anti sectarian work you're doing is, is, is definitely not, not, not far removed at all from, from the, the stuff that people are trying to get you to confront with with the black lives matter movement like they're, they're trying to get people to talk about about the history of of institutional racism in in britain um in the way they define it and and in a sense i get the feeling that you're trying to do the same with with sectarianism um which i actually wanted to ask like how, when you, you mentioned early on um institutional uh, institutional sectarianism do you think like how, how would you define that and like can, can you give us an example of that just because um, perhaps it's a little bit different to the way people have explained institutional racism um, to me in terms of its definition. Um, well, I suppose that um, um, uh, since the foundation of, of the, the Northern State, um, which is coming up on 100 years, um, the, 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 the workplace was always a battleground in terms of, of who got the best job, who got jobs, you know, well, the best jobs are not, but certainly there was a, a section of of um, um, the, the the Protestant Unionist people in the north that were, were um, guaranteed all the the, the plum jobs, um, and the civil service would have been the same, um, and all the the jobs in in the emergent health service that came out of the um, nineteen. Uh, Forty-five welfare compromise, and you know that the, the uh, one of the the core um, grievances of the civil rights movement was um, access to employment um, for Catholics. Uh, the um, and there, there were there were people that still to this day believe that it wasn't an issue, that there was no problem. Um, we had to engage in um, a ten-year. Uh, campaign since the start of the civil rights movement to 1976 to introduce the first um, for employment act um, which outlawed religious discrimination in, in Northern Ireland workplaces because up until that point you could decide that you were given a job to a Protestant or over a Catholic with the same qualifications now it took um, and you know it, it, you know just because you introduced legislation in 1976, it doesn't mean that you've dealt with the problem in 1977. Um, that legislation had to be updated in 1989 to take into account the private sector 
which wasn't um, involved in, in the first legislation, that was even more challenging because then what you had to do was that it was the creation of a neutral and harmonious working environment in huge big um, corporations. So that meant going in to places and stripping down um, uh, symbols of religious and political identity. Um, now my, my old friend Joe that used to work with us, now sadly departed, worked in, in, in Shorts Aircraft Factory and he says that in July in Shorts it was walking like walking down the Champs-Élysées. Um, you know, you're just getting hit up the face with, with Union Jacks. So that kind of stuff that, you know, people find that hard to understand that the workplace was like that because that legislation has been very, very successful. But that's how how um, difficult it was, and it was embedded in institutions. Um, and I, I suppose one of the uh, consequences of um, the, the the conflict and the peace process is that a lot of those, particularly in employment, those issues have been redressed. Um, and there's a sense, particularly we have noticed it in relation to evaluations of, of the post-Good Friday Agreement situation here is that um, uh, Protestant Unionist loyalist people feel that they've lost out, whereas there's a sense of nationalist gain among the whole thing. Mm. Um, so th that sort of uh, tells you the extent of, of, of the problem. Mm. That's without even going into all the other issues around housing and the allocation of housing. Um, the gerrymandering of, of votes and all that sort of stuff that took place, those were all institutional. We had to change the institutions. Yeah, I guess, I mean, people people these days, I guess, sometimes don't believe that that kind of institutional change is possible, that they just kind of, like, as soon as you say, yeah, we need to change the structure of something, that they just kind of say, oh, well, you, you just want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and tear everything down and kind of ignore successful movements to 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 make make the the country fair i just also want to clarify something i said there earlier i don't uh, i just about when i was saying about people from from minority backgrounds and whatnot being worse affected by covid like people of 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 lower incomes have just been worse affected by it and i'm not i'm not being like like discriminatory and saying that that's not the case like people with uh smaller houses who work on the front line who have got jobs that they can't that haven't been that have been considered essential workers like they've all been worse affected by this and i'm i just yeah i want to make sure I, people don't think i'm yeah. i'm avoiding that yeah. i'm trying to say that's yeah. not the case yeah <laughs> there's there's also another issue there of course that um a lot of the people who were considered to be um essential workers Previous to COVID, were were um, considered low skilled, um, uh, performing menial tasks, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, and those are the people who were the, the lowest paid, people that were working on precarious contracts, people who were um, more susceptible to um, uh, uh, abuse in the workplace, um, and then all of a sudden we were revering and clapping these people as essential workers, and we wondered at the time how long will it be. In the aftermath of, of COVID, because I suppose there was sort of a hope, wasn't there, in June and July that we'd seen the worst of it and it would go away. Um, but all of those people would just revert to their status back again as as um, um, performing menial tasks. Mm -hmm. And those kind of things were happening. Um, but you can't get away from the class nature of that, um, that uh, 
I understand exactly what you're saying that there is a class nature to exposure to to COVID and and um, the measures taken for dealing with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. You might like. Uh, do you think that there will be any improvement in in how we look at those kind of frontline workers? Because, like, as you rightly say, there was the there's that the the immigration bill that was coming through was classing nearly all of the people that we were classing as essential workers as 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 you say low skilled because they're earning less than than thirty thousand pounds a year. Like that's where they draw the bar for for look for you know what should be highly skilled work. And I mean, either you got to drop the bar or pay these highly skilled people more. Um, one or the other, <laughs> but do you, do you think that will lead to to maybe unions demanding more from from like public public sector unions or or just people frontline workers demanding more because of the work that they've put in? Um, well, I, I think that that um, we we did at the time. I think that unions were um, a number of unions have to be commended for um, some of the the actions that they took to ensure safety in the workplace. Um, but whenever whenever things started to ease off and restrictions started to ease off and everybody thought that that um, we had successfully beaten the virus in the summer, we could see signs very very quickly that um, that people were uh, um, just reverting back to the way they were treated um, previous to COVID. For example, um, you know just before the COVID nineteen. Uh, um, Onslaught. I mean, nurses here in Northern Ireland had to take industrial action to get pay parity with their colleagues in the National Health Service across the water. Um, and then we had the clapping every Thursday. We had um, the posters and the publicity campaigns um, about these heroes. Um, we had Colonel Tom walking around his garden, um, raising nearly forty million for the NHS. Um, and then the first time that MPs got um, to discuss and vote for nurses for pay raise, or pay raise for nurses, they decided not to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's superficial. Um, I think that uh, unions are probably seen uh, during the COVID crisis um, something that they haven't seen for a very long time, um, an understanding among workers that. Um, it's only through collective action that they make any gains. Um, and certainly, I mean, we uh, in the, even in the local area where I live, there were a number of workplaces where workers walked off the job despite the unions, as opposed to, you know, um, as a result of union activity, in order to keep themselves safe and alive. And when you're confronted with those choices, you don't wait around for industrial action ballots. And that could be the new world that we're moving into. So you think maybe it could end up being more spontaneous even than, than previous strike action could have been? Yeah, well, if you're, if you're confronted with um, um, being told that you're an essential worker um, and you come into your workplace and you have to stand shoulder to shoulder with somebody in a, in a meat factory or um, somebody that's not wearing a mask, or you, you, you find that whenever you ask for personal protective equipment, you can't get it. You have to make stark choices, don't you, on behalf of you and your family. And I suppose we're all, whether it's personal decisions or government decisions, we're all making those judgments now between our lives and our livelihoods. Um, and uh, in the absence of leadership, 
people will do what's best for them. Do you think? Do you think any of that's partially due to the fact that it is so difficult to go on strike, especially for 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 nurses and for for frontline workers? Do you think that that kind of spontaneity is a is a is because of the the the, the difficulty that it is now? To I can't remember the exact quota, but you need like a. A, a stupidly high percentage of your of your union to vote for strike action before it's like acceptable yeah well i mean the the notion that that um even union workers uh would go on strike is is um a very rare occurrence even in the most organized of, of workplaces because it's so difficult and successive anti-union legislation during the 1980s. Every, I think there were 18 pieces of legislation introduced by um, the Tory government mm. that the new Labour government didn't um, um, repeal any of those. So they're all still on the statutes um, that uh, constrain the trade union movement. Um, so it's very, very difficult. And of course, workers are in the material circumstances of a lot of workers is much different than it was in the um, 1970s and the 1980s, more likely to have a mortgage, to be crippled with high personal debt. And the notion that you would um, walk off a job um, for uh, uh, to, to use your economic power in the workplace, um, it just uh, it, 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 it's, it's nearly been eroded. It's, it's so difficult for workers to take strike action that it's such a rare occurrence. It doesn't happen. Um, and But when you're confronted with a life and death situation. That's why I'm saying these people were, you know, weren't ringing a union office to ask to speak to an official to get some advice on it. Mm. You know, people were saying, I'm walking off, you can do what you want. Um, and uh, in some senses, unions uh, had, to, had to deal with that and, and some of them dealt with that admirably. Uh, but it's extremely difficult for any worker to take that kind of industrial action anymore. In in uh, uh well, staying within the limits of the law. Mm. So, uh, just to sort of move towards towards wrapping up, um, like what what work are 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 you working on with what campaigns or work are you doing with trademark at the minute? Like, is there anything you're you want to sort of highlight, like in in terms of maybe research work, anything that you're you're doing at the moment? Um. Well, uh, I suppose over the, since really the last economic collapse um you know in 2008 there's been a, a sort of a, a separation of an anti-sectarian work uh, i'm supposed with, with this maybe the successes of the of the peace process that workplace interventions are not as um numerous as they used to be um uh, our focus has, has shifted very much to looking at what happened in 2008 and why did working people and why did the organs of working people organize labor not foresee what was coming and with that um, financial crash and how do we ensure that the next crash which we're already in um, um, th th that people didn't see that coming now COVID caught everybody on the hop in the sense that I mean we were heading towards another um, crisis in capitalism um, whenever we were locked down uh, and but you know they, they couldn't use the argument, well, nobody's seen that coming, because we've been arguing now um, for the last 10 years that, um, well, actually, you can. And if you look at at, um, at economics in, the, uh, in a political economy sense, rather than pure economics, 
you can quite easily predict the future just by looking back at the past. So we've been engaged in a lot of that work over the last number of years, developing um, our political education arm. Um, and we've also um, concerned about uh, the, uh, the lack of action on climate change as a real concern for anybody that's got children and grandchildren in my case. Um, you know, that we are um, uh, sleepwalking into something that's going to make um, COVID-19 look like a tea party um, mm -hmm. when we're uh, facing, in possibly in my lifetime, um, food shortages because of climate change, um, um, water shortages, all of those things are issues for the working class. So we've been developing programs with um, marginalized communities, ex-combatants, um, political parties, workers, and anybody that will talk to us around exploring economic alternatives um, going into the future. And we see that as a real sort of natural extension of our anti-sectarian work rather than something <laughs> completely separate. Mm, I mean, like one of the... One of the things that I've been noticing of late that seems to really be popping up is, is the when when I've been talking to people about about how how we might transition and sort of make Northern Ireland greener and more carbon neutral or you know however you want to define it, um, and a lot of people have like the the idea of Northern Ireland becoming more far more self sufficient in terms of food production and in terms of energy production like ideas that I, I i keep coming across in like loads and loads of different places and organizations is it's actually quite encouraging that that there's a, a body of people who have who have realized that like that is probably the most i, I don't know like it sounds very isolationist but it's it's ultimately the thing that's going to like secure stability for for the country in in what's going to be um an interesting sort of rest of the century <laughs> yeah um well i mean that's it we're we're starting from a very low base in the sense that all our institutions um whether it's it's um officials at, at local council level or um people in the the um the stormont assembly are conditioned to look at the economy and to look at at um, um, uh, all all of these issues that are facing us through the prism of of, of um, forty years of neoliberalism, they can't see anything, you know, past that, or they can't look outside of the those parameters and say, well, why why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? Um, and the, the neoliberalism doesn't provide the answers for us. The only the only strategy it has is um, shutting down the public sector and more and more privatisation and more austerity. Uh, and even I mean uh, Boris Johnson, apart from his Brexit, um, his issue on Brexit, his promise to the people was no more austerity, and um, that it had recognised that that the people that voted him in um, needed to get their head lifted from from. Uh, what had been imposed on them um, by uh, Theresa May, Cameron, and of course the Labour government that um, preceded them. So COVID has thrown everything up in the air around that issue, but it's not going to um, um, delay climate change. If, if anything, it could exacerbate that thing. And really, we see our role now as sort of 
um, trying to get people to start talking about what the future is going to look like um, and confronting these issues that um, uh, we may have a, a, an opportunity to change. But that will, you know, for, for us, it's, you know, all the changes that you make to your individual lifestyle, you can recycle as much as you want. Um, you can, um, you know, refit your home to be as carbon neutral as possible. But unless we get governments and institutions and corporations to take the same kind of actions, uh, you know, we're like the, the finger in the deck. It doesn't make any difference. Well, I mean, that seems like, that feels like a good note to uh, to end things on. It's, uh, yeah, go out, confront, I think the general theme of your work is go out, confront the the things that uh, you don't want to confront. And it's, uh, it's yeah, pretty pretty inspiring message. Confront the, the darkness, the chaos, the the unknowns, the the things that make us uncomfortable or, or sort of bubble under the surface. And hopefully we can do something better with them than just ignore those problems. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I'm um, optimistic. Um, being a Manchester United supporter these days, you have to be optimistic, <laughs> don't you? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Mel, it was, uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks very much. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.